And thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast from Connect Church. We'd like to invite you to join us in person at 1101 West Grand in Ponca City, Oklahoma, or on Facebook Live. Go to connectchurchpc.com to learn more about how we are helping people connect every day. We are a people, connected people, all in God's love. Welcome, and I, I want you guys to know that you guys are a gift to us from God, and uh, we truly appreciate and truly love it, and, and know that God is doing great things because you guys are here and, and are asking and wanting God to do great things. We're going to be, over the next five weeks, there's a, a book, first of all, of course, the only book that we preach from is the Bible, but there's a book that we're pulling and gleaning some ideas from, and it's called Master Your Money by Ron Blue. And if you want to know who Ron Blue is, you're like, I haven't heard that name. Ron Blue was Dave Ramsey before Dave Ramsey was Dave Ramsey. And so, tell you a little bit about Ron Blue's story is he graduated from college and had this goal in mind. This is where I wanted to achieve. And, and so he moved to New York City and he started his own CPA firm and suddenly became the, the hottest thing on the market. And within eight years, he was a millionaire. And life was great. And then his wife became a Christian. And he said, man, he told her, he goes, this will end in our divorce. She quietly and honorably prayed for him day in and day out. And then he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and so um, we have a Wesleyan pastor in Atlanta, Georgia, who interviewed Ron Blue because that's where Ron Blue lives now and has his, his uh, um, consulting firm is in Atlanta, and so when Kevin Myers interviewed him, he opened it up. He said, hey, any Wesleyan pastors who want to use these interviews, want to use any portions of this, it's out there. Go ahead and use it. And so if you're wondering, hey, that doesn't look like you who's interviewing him, it's not me. It's Kevin Myers, 12 Stone Church, Atlanta, Georgia. But we're pulling off some of these clips to help us learn how to master our money God's way. So uh, let's go ahead and, and, and play that first video clip for us, that introduction. Well, yeah, I've had a um, kind of a fascinating background. Now as I look back on it, I'm 74, so I've lived a long time and through a lot of economic scenarios. But when I, um, I went, it was in high school in the 50s, and in the 60s I was in college. And then I went to work on Wall Street for three years uh, out of college uh, and left when I was 28, started a CPA firm, and I worked, uh, built that firm for seven years. <clears throat> so I had... I, what I think of as the best of Wall Street and the best of Main Street. And then I was called to ministry and Dr. Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary challenged me to help him plan and manage his finances. And so long story short, I began uh, with Howie and others and helping them plan and manage their money. And here's what I found, that the best of Wall Street and the best of Main Street 
was all in the Bible. And that was the revelation to me was that, my goodness, all of the good advice that I had seen given, it all had its roots in Scripture. So I built a business then for the next 25 years of helping Christians plan and manage their money out of a biblical worldview uh, and just found that God's Word is authoritative. It speaks to everything about money. That was the biggest revelation was it's all there. And that's, you know, that's not really a surprise because God's principles work. Did you hear what he said? The best of Wall Street and the best of Main Street is all in the Bible. Usually when I, when I preach about stewardship, I preach about how we handle our money, I, I preach from the book of Leviticus, still a great book, and you're like, Leviticus? Really? I, I realize, if you're reading through the Bible, and you get to Leviticus, and it has all these stuff, and you're like, wow, this is really tough to get through. But when it talks about how we handle our money, it, it is so thick and so rich as God lays out this outline for his people just to, to follow him and to, to understand what he's saying. But he says it right there, the best of Wall Street and the best of Main Street is all found in the Bible. There is no wisdom greater that we can find throughout the entire world than that which is given to us in the Bible. It doesn't matter what you want to say, what do you want to talk about, the wisdom the Bible gives us is, is bar none. It's the best. I, I want to read you a little bit of his story here on pages 11 and 12 of the book so you, you can understand where he's coming from. He said, at the age of 24, I had every ingredient needed for success as an MBA degree, my certified public accountant certi certificate, a well-paying job at the world's largest CPA firm in their New York City office, a driving ambition to be success, and a supportive and very intelligent wife. For the next eight years, I proved myself that anyone can succeed by really putting everything into it. By the time I was 32 years old, I had achieved every finance, financial and success goal that I had set. You see, early in life, that was his goal. How can I climb the corporate ladder? How can I be a success? And I realized that so many times in our lives, we want to be a success in the world's eyes, but God calls us to a spiritual success. And so what happened? His wife got saved. And he, I told you, he said, man, this is going to be our divorce. But she quietly and patiently prayed for her spouse, and she quietly and patiently prayed that, that God would move and God would do great things. And then when he got saved, God said, I want you to use everything you have for ministry. You see, sometimes, church, we think that the only ministry that is to be done is a pastor, youth pastor, worship pastor, whatever other adjective you want to use, but do you realize that your everyday lives are part of the ministry? We are all called to be ministers. You're called to represent Christ. And, you know, and I get how tough this is, and I'll just tell you a story how tough it is to follow Christ when it seems like it'd be easier not to follow Christ. I have had the opportunity of my oldest son coaching him in basketball from pre-K all the way up through his freshman year of high school. And when he was an eighth grader, he was playing on a team that did not have a whole lot of talent. And um, we had three guys who were good. And uh, one guy got hurt two minutes into the game. And Jack got in foul trouble. I'm not sure how that happened. And then another guy just decided that he wasn't going to think the entire game. And we were getting beaten and the other team had this big guy on it that every time he'd grab the ball, he'd lower his shoulder and run over our guys, and the ref would call nothing. I'm a pastor. 
and I'm doing the very pastoral thing, I'm yelling at the ref to make a call. When the ref says, hey, I'm not going to call that, I'm not going to call that, and I call the ref over, I go, you've got to call that, somebody's going to get hurt, and it's going to be your fault. And I, I may have uh, threatened him with a lawsuit at some point in there, may not have, but then when I realized that he wasn't going to do anything, I started yelling at her player and telling him to start playing basketball and stop playing football. What I didn't know was the player's co- dad was the coach on the other team. He started yelling at me. And then he came with me. And then in the middle of all this is going on, all this chaos is going on, right? And my wife is sitting over in the stands, and she's screaming out across the court, Pastor Mark, sit down and be quiet. I look at, I look at the people around me, I'm like, man, I don't know who Pastor Mark is, but I'm sure embarrassed for him. God calls us. That one of my, my most fine moments in life. Had a conversation with the coach after the game, explained to him what his son was doing, why it was wrong, why it should have been every single time. He, he should have fouled out in the first quarter. Um, he got mad at me and decided since we had lost all of our point guards, all of our point guards either fouled out or, or were, uh, were injured or something else happened, decided to go to full court press just to prove a point to me. What, not probably one of the most finest moments of his life. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter where we are, what we do, we are called to exemplify Christ. We're called to set an example, we're called to be different. Everything that we find is in the Bible. And so Ron, his ministry is in finances. Listen to him describe how he he came to these stages of which we come through as we learn to handle our finances. Go ahead and listen to this with us or watch this with us. Ron, you talk about five categories or places people are in their financial journey. I think you use the word sequential. I call it categories. Can you talk us through those five and give us just a sense of what they mean? I think... uh, if you were to survey a congregation or an audience, you'd find some people that are that are really struggling. They're behind in their payments, perhaps they can't make ends meet, and it's a struggle. They're the struggling. Then you get some that are living paycheck to paycheck, and they're surviving. Mm. They're beyond a little bit the struggling. And then you get some that are living within their means, if you will, and able to put some money away and uh, save for major purchases and so forth. And they, they are the stable people. Uh, things are working pretty good for them. They may be, it's gonna be different when you're younger and when you're older, but they're, they're stable. Then you get some that uh, are now meeting long-term goals uh, and they've got their house paid down a little, little bit and they are uh, what I would call secure. The, the economies can go like this, and they're going to be okay. They're, they're secure. Uh, and then you have some people at the other end of the spectrum that are surplus. They've got a lot. Uh, they're living very well, and uh, what we've been able to do in working with people is those that are in the surplus category, helping them define how much is enough. In other words, do you have enough? Then why are you still accumulating? So there needs to be a limit on the surplus side. But that's almost a progression. here. And there's a picture I'm going to pop up, and it kind of just shows the stair steps of where they are. But um, you have struggling, surviving, stable, secure, surplus. Uh, I've, I've been in each one of those steps. I don't think I've been at surplus yet. But a- after the kids are out of the house and, and we're no longer 
buying all their whims. I'm pretty sure Terry and I will have a surplus at that point. But I remember when, when Terry and I first got married, we were struggling financially. And because it's a great thing when you first get married to struggle financially because then you have to come together and uh, you can't go out on dates because you don't have any money to go out on dates. So you do this really wild and crazy thing. You ready to do something wild and crazy? We would sit down and talk to one another. We would, <laughs> we would play stupid games. We'd lay on the floor and do leg wrestling. You guys ever leg wrestle? We, we would do that. I mean, just anything that, that, that entertain ourselves because we couldn't, we couldn't spend money on anything. We were just making things meet. And uh, so we were, we were struggling, and, and we were, uh, then Terry got a, got a job, and we were then surviving. We could actually see light at the end of the tunnel. We wasn't sure if it was a train or not, but we could see light at the end of the tunnel. And I remember when, when we were early in ministry here at, at Ponca City, and, and I told Terry, uh, if you're wondering, we were married for seven years before Jack came along the entire time, and people would say, hey, you guys are going to have kids? And I kept saying, I'm waiting until we're stable to have kids, financially stable to have kids. And I, all these wonderful people would come to me and said, well, you're never going to be stable to have kids. But I kept saying, man, we're going to wait until this, this point right here, wait until this point right here. I didn't want to sit there and struggle and not be able to do stuff because we had kids and, and ha- not be able to have fun because we had kids. And, but leading up to that, we did a lot of traveling before we had kids because we were secure. And maybe that worked into it as well. I was too busy being a kid to have kids. It was fun. But when we look at this, where we are, The question has got to be, how do I get from where I am to the next step? It's a great question to ask Ron Blue, isn't it? Watch this video clip with us. Ron, among your many discoveries, one of them that I read is there are five biblical financial principles. Tell us what those are and talk a little bit about this. Well, the interesting thing was is sometimes you don't know what you know. And I was testifying before a congressional subcommittee in the early 90s. Senator Dodd from Connecticut was Mm -hmm. doing the interviewing. And his question was, what would you tell the American family about their money? And right off the top of my head, I thought, what I'm going to tell him is going to make him laugh. So I said, Senator, I would tell them to spend less than they earn, avoid the use of debt, build some margin into their finances, and set long-term goals so that they could prioritize their their money between the short-term and the long-term. And I stopped at those four and looked up, and Senator picked up his pencil, and he wrote them down, and he repeated them back to me. Hmm. And then he said, well, it seems to me that that would work at any income level. And I said, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. And we had a great conversation. <laughs> we had a great conversation on that. Uh-huh. But those four principles, when you add to it, give generously, uh-huh. are five biblical principles of money management and the illustration of the guy it works for the government it works for the single mom it works for the billionaire it works in africa it works in japan those are like biblical principles those are transcendent principles live within your income avoid debt save set long-term goals and give generously and they're never going to change they're always going to be relevant and they're always going to work pop those five stages up there for us Spend less than you earn. Avoid the use of debt. Build margin. Save. Set long-term goals. Give generously. 
This morning we're going to rest right on that one. Spend less than you earn. See, our problem is, is not that we don't make enough money, it's that we spend more than we make. In America, do you know that most of the average American spends 10% more than they earn every year? You can see how this can be a problem. You can see how this could, could really hinder on some things. And we always keep saying, if I earned more money, if I made more money, I'd be okay. I want to give you a list of 12 names. Rapper 50 Cent, Kim Basinger, Don Johnson, MC Hammer, Mickey Rooney, Meatloaf, Drake Bell from Drake and Josh. Meatloaf was a performer back in the 80s. I heard someone not knowing who Meatloaf is. Are you, they're like, like the food Meatloaf? No. He was amazing. Dion Warwick, Willie Nelson, Tony Braxton, Elton John, and Stephen Baldwin. You know what all 12 of these have in common? What? They all, that's right. They all filed for bankruptcy. See, as they were making more and more money every year, and as their contracts got bigger, they could not live within their means. The problem wasn't they weren't making enough money. Their problem was they were spending more than they were making. And it never works. In Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12, it says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoops, my thing just closed out on me. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, and so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep. See, the problem isn't how much we're earning, it's how much we're spending. I was fortunate, raised by, by very, I, I call them frugal, um, actually I call them cheap. I always tell people that if, if you rub my mom and dad together, quarters will stop popping, start popping out of them, and uh, very tight growing up, and, and so I remember, and I've shared this story before, but I remember when I was getting ready for college, and we were filling out the federal uh, student aid forms, and I go to my dad and say, hey dad, I got to fill these forms out. And so I need to know how much money you guys make. And I remember starting, I said, hey, we make less than 25000 right? And dad goes, no. I'm like, okay, so we make between this and this. And dad goes, no. And I get to the third level, and I'm like, well, we make between this and this, right? Dad goes, yeah. And I looked at him and go, you mean we're not poor? <laughs> dad goes, I never said we were poor. And I'm like, you only buy Doritos once a month, dad. That symbolizes poverty right there. And my dad looked at me and he goes, we do not plan our grocery list based on your wants. Man, that was harsh. You know what? I lived through it. But here's what I, I know when we look at my parents now. They're able to do stuff and have fun because they were willing. They were willing to put in the sacrifice early in life because we're going to live within our means. And we're not going to spend more we make. I, I, this isn't, I'm going to read a story for you. It's not my parents, so, so don't think that I was that, that poverty stricken as a child. 
But I want to read you this story. It comes from page 14 of the book. It says, a dramatic exception of the retired pastor who never earned more than $8,000 in a year. Ron met this humble man because he wanted to know if he had enough financial resources to live out the rest of his life. At the time of his question, he was 80 years old and had been retired for 20 years, and his wife had begun to require full-time nursing care. His question, therefore, was justifiable. As I generally do, he says, I began to ask some questions before giving advice. First, I asked him if he had no debts. He had any debts. His response was no. And he went on and said he'd never borrowed any money. I asked, why not? He said because if he borrowed money, he would have to pay it back someday, and he couldn't afford to pay off debt, feed his family, and tithe. My second question was to ask what resources he presently had. He indicated that in his wife's name, they had approximately $250,000 in cash, money market funds, and certificates of deposit. Additionally, in his name, they had another $350,000 in cash and cash types investments. Needless to say, I was impressed. Over $600,000 in cash accumulated by a couple who'd never earned more than $8,000 a year, and that was in 1982. Was there a problem that they didn't make enough money? No, they well, lived well within their, their means. A caveat to the story, here's how God blesses. The man, had, for some reason, him and his wife had, had, were given a, a sum of money, $10,000. He decided to invest it with a startup company. And within a few years, that startup company exploded and that $10,000 within five years was worth $1,063,000. Surely because he was putting God in a person's life, God was blessing. We, we get so many things wrong, and I, I, in a couple of weeks I'm going to talk about this, making God your priority. But we, we fail so many times in life because God's not number one, he's not number two, he's not three or four, and if we have to be honest, sometimes God doesn't even make our top 10 list. But here's a man who said, I'm not going to borrow money because I'm afraid that if I borrow money, I will not be able to put God first in my life. The problem isn't usually earning, it's how we manage our money. The challenge for all of us is to spend, less, spend less. Listen to what Ron has to say about this. During your early business, non-Christian days, you were making money, you worked on Wall Street, business success, the money was yours. In your book, you talk about God owns everything. Talk a little bit about that change in thinking. Well, uh, it's clear in scripture. First Chronicles 29, what David had to say, and in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. It's a big everything. It's a big everything. Well, to me, that's the most fundamental decision that a Christian can make. When they recognize God's ownership, then 100% of what they have belongs to Him. The important thing of that, that means that every spending decision I make is a spiritual decision. If He owns it, because I'm a steward, I'm a manager, I'm a trustee. So it's no more spiritual to give than it is to go on vacation. Now, I believe we need to give uh, to break the power of money, but if I'm using what he entrusted me with, then theoretically and practically speaking, 
every decision I make financially is a decision about using his resources. It's the most fundamental decision that a Christian can make. And once they make that decision, everything changes. And all of a sudden, they began seeing things, seeing things in Scripture that they didn't see before, just like me. Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Haven't you ever thought about that before, right? You have to be willing to change your behavior, to spend less than you earn. But get this, every spending decision is a spiritual decision. And I'm going to use that from now on when Lance wants me to go to McDonald's. I'm going to say it's a spiritual decision, and God doesn't want me to mess up his temple. And I know what you guys are thinking, if that's God's temple, I feel bad for what God just made. But every spinning decision, how we use our resources, how we use what God has given us, it is a spiritual decision. We need to honor God above everything else. We need to put God first in our life. But why is this so hard? Why is that so hard? Watch the last clip of Ron Blue explaining why that's so hard. So Ron, we're supposed to learn how to, well, spend less than we earn. And, and when I read that, it's simple. Mm-hmm. And, and then sometimes you add to it and do it for a really long time. And then you'll have some kind of financial success. Now, why is that so difficult to master? <laughs> Well, there's a lot of reasons it's difficult. One is that uh, I didn't know what I needed till I went to the mall. <laughs> okay? And we're, we're confronted with billions of dollars of advertising every day attempting to make us discontent. And it works. So basically, we live in a society where uh, we're taught to be discontent, and this next thing will do it. So living within my income is unnatural in this culture. So those principles are transcendent, they work, they will provide financial freedom, they'll provide financial confidence, they'll provide financial contentment, but we're, we have no reinforcement of that at all, which is why in a church, if we can get that as a part of the church culture, we can get that reinforcement that we need uh, on a day-to-day basis, we need it. Why is it so hard? Because the Advertising industry is building billions upon billions of dollars telling us exactly what we need. I mean, it's nothing new. It's been going on all along. They, they, they target us, and they, they know we're looking. Now that there's social media out there, they, they target us even, even more. And I, I laugh about this because Terry and I share my, my, our Facebook account, and I look for running stuff, and Terry looks for girl stuff. And so Facebook thinks that I'm a woman runner. And so I get these female shoe ads all the time. I'm like, wow, I really like those shoes. And Terry's like, you like girls' shoes? I'm like, well, they're, girls' shoes have nicer colors than boys' shoes. And uh, nicer colors make me run faster. That's what I'm sticking with. But they, now they, they can target in us exactly know what we like and how we do things. Every click tells them how to target us and how to entice us that this is exactly what we need. And that's what they're there for. But here's what the Apostle Paul says to us. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you've had no opportunity to show it. Philippians 4.11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the situation. I have learned to be content no matter the situation. 
Man, contentment is a great place to be. Because when we look at that, I, I want to show you these, these three categories we have in life. There's, there's three columns. We have content, which God calls us to be content in, in where we are. And we have complacent, we have discontent. If there's any place where we should be discontent, it should be in our spiritual journey. It should be in how, how, how well we know God. That should be a holy discontent that says, I want to know God more. There should be a holy discontent that tells us we want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. There should be a holy discontent in something like that. But I'm talking about a financial or a, a, a earthly discontent. You see, when we're content, we're grateful. And we're like, man, look what I have. I'm so grateful that I have this. I'm so grateful that I have this. And, and, and we are... We truly are blessing God because of it. If we're complacent, we're passive and like, oh, you know, I'm not going to try very hard. I'm just going to get what I want to get. That's okay. I, it drives me crazy to be around people who are just complacent and say, ah, I get what I get. It really drives me crazy. Because honestly, if I, was, if I were to err in life, I would err on the side of the discontent because there's a drivenness. You're driven, and you've just got to go more and achieve more and do more and more and more and more. But sometimes in, in life, in, in our finances, when we keep trying to get more, we've got to come back to what the Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content. Because when we're content, we celebrate. Say, look at what God has done for me. I want to celebrate everything that God has done when we're complacent, we're in the comparison trap and say, oh, you know, I don't have as much talent. Or I don't have as much resources. I don't have as much money. I don't have as much whatever. When we're discontent, our comparison trap is this. Of, I've got to buy this car to do this. I've got to buy this house to look better than this. I've got to get wear these clothes so I can do all of these things. Instead of, being, instead of celebrating what God has done for us, we, we fall into this comparison trap. To be content, we honor God. If we're complacent, we dishonor. We say, I'm not good enough. If we're, if we're discontent, we dishonor God by saying, I go ahead of God. Where, where are we? I mean, Paul has said, I've learned to be content in all things. Paul, who could have made a huge living in the tent-making industry, he did very well making tents. He chose to give all of that up to follow Jesus, to, to be an apostle of Christ. He said, I've learned contentment. When I was growing up, we, we, we sang a song from when I was growing up earlier today. Uh, they will know us by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Well, another one that they sang when I was growing up was this world is not my home. We're just a passing through. See, our problem when it comes to discontent is we think that there, this is all there is. You see, before we master our money, we, have met, we must master our emotions. Sometimes we, we, we make emotional purchases. We, we sometimes eat emotionally. We do a lot of things based off our emotions instead of based off of God's calling on our life. What do you mean, Mark? What do you mean? How many times do you see someone that God impresses on you? Why don't you go over and talk to that person 
and you say, and I quote, I don't feel like it. Teenagers, how many times do your parents ask you to do a chore around the house, and you say, and I quote, I don't feel like it. I know, I know, I, that, was, that was going way overboard. I mean, stop meddling in my life. Husbands, wives, how many times do we know we should do something for our spouse, and we say, I don't feel like it. I, I would say it to the parents, but, you know, parents, we always have to do, it, do stuff for our kids whether we feel like it or not, right? I don't feel like waking up early on a Saturday morning. I don't feel like getting up in the middle of the night when you've thrown up and clean up all your stuff. We can't live our lives based off emotions. We've got to live off of something deeper, something stronger, that, that conviction of God, that, that push, that unction that God has on us. That's what we have been called to. In Proverbs 21.20, it says, Wise people live in wealth and luxury, but stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. Isn't it? Echoes from the Good News translation. Good news. Stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. Now, well, that's not very nice. That's, that doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's a, when I was in college, I lived off of the zero-sum mentality. Here's what the zero-sum mentality is. If I have money in the bank, I can go spend it on something I want. Here's the mature mentality if I have money in the bank, I can save it and save it until I get enough money to go buy the running shoes that I want. Or whatever thing that Amazon is telling me I need right here, right now. I mean, I never knew I needed so many things until Amazon started telling me I need all these things. You see, we get into an emotional crisis all the time. And God says, I want you to grow above that. It's not about what you want right here, right now. It's saying no to the immediate so you can say yes to the greater. I want to finish with a, with a great story. I'm going I'm to talk about one of Jack's friends. I, I went over and watched uh, regional cross country, and I'm weird. I love watching running stuff. I love track in high school, and, and so it doesn't, it doesn't take long. If you want to ask me about track stuff, I'll tell you all about track in high school and how great it was. But I love watching them run cross country, and Jack did a great job, and, and, and uh, he, he passed several guys at the end. In fact, he finished on a dead sprint. I said, man, Jack, here's what I want. I want you to learn how to run the entire full 5K at a full sprint. I know it's impossible. But Jack has a friend. His name is Butch Miner, Burt Miner. Why do I keep calling him Butch? I've called him Butch like three times. Bert is a freshman, and he came in, and he wanted to do stuff, and, and, and he made varsity a freshman. But what I saw between sophomore and junior, he's a junior this year, is he completely transformed his body to be a runner. So I dropped Jack, or I went up there, and I was talking to Jack after one of his cross-country practices, and Bert walks around the corner with his shirt off. I'm like, holy cow, you've got like 6% body fat. I go, you're, you're cut, you've lost weight. I go, your, your, your muscles are long. And, and, and I mean, all the things that runners want, they want long, skinny muscles. And I mean, all the long, skinny muscles. And I'm like, you really put the work into this. 
Yesterday, he ran at, at regionals and was able to run a good enough time, well enough time, good enough time, I'm not sure, some English teacher will correct me, that he made it to state. His mom and dad were there, his little brother was there, he had some grandparents that were there, and to watch the emotion he was overcome with. Why? So many times in life, he said no to the immediate because he had a goal in mind. I, mean, I watched him there, and, and uh, his dad, BJ, is a good friend of mine, and I, I put my arm around BJ and said, that is exciting right there. So what about you? What are you willing to say no to so you can say yes to something greater later in life? Would you pray with me, church? Dear God, I just thank you for this day, Lord. I just pray, God, that you pour out your grace and mercy upon us and challenge us, Lord, not to, to live at the whim of our emotions, the spiritual desire in our minds that, that chase after you, God. And I ask right now, God, that you'd pour out your grace and mercy on us. May we be men and women that, that seek you with everything we have. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Hey, Connectors, great seeing you guys again. Go in grace and peace. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Have a great week.